Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hello, champions. To those of you who are coming back, welcome back. And to those of you who are new to the show, it is great to have you. Today, we are talking about stoicism. When we hear the word stoic, what often comes to mind is a repression of emotion, you know, the stone-faced response to adversity. You can think of that kind of stoicism as using it with a lowercase s, just the word stoic. What we're talking about today is the philosophical school of stoicism. Think of that as stoic with a capital S. And Stoic precepts have been around for thousands of years. They've influenced current psychological principles, therapies, the tenets of world religions. But at its core, Stoicism provides a way to find happiness in life, while at the same time taking on whatever adversity is thrown at you. Now, is it the only way to do that? Of course not. There's many, many paths to the mountaintop of wisdom and equanimity. But maybe in here today, you'll hear some tools, some ideas that resonate with you, things that you can apply to your practice or your work or your life. And to take us on this dive into Stoicism, we're joined by our guest from Verbal Judo. Yes, stimulus episode number one, our good friend, Dr. Dan McCollum from the Medical College of Georgia. And this 30-minute conversation with Dan is not a complete how-to guide. It is far from it because there are volumes written on Stoicism. This is more of a discussion of a few of the general Stoic ideas. And in the second half of the podcast, we're going to get into examples of using Stoicism in the practice of medicine. Although I'll say this, the same principles apply to any line of work. And personally, applying Stoic principles had a big impact on my experience in clinical practice and feeling joy there, and even more so to this day in my everyday life. Now, when I was in the emergency department, I would have moments during a shift when I was put off, I guess you could say angry, let's say that, at all sorts of stuff that would happen. Even if it was micro anger, it was still anger. Like the charge nurse would load up my area with a whole bunch of patients all at once. And it seemed to me that the other docs weren't getting any patients. Like, come on. Or a consultant might impugn to my face, my management of a patient. And in these situations, I would often feel this just uncomfortable sense of fire in my chest. It wasn't burning from like reflux. It was just, you know, like that, that fire of heat of anger. So at the end of the podcast, after our conversation is complete, I'm going to go into a bit of detail on specific stoic techniques for managing anger. And as a final note, you'll hear Dan speak a bit about the Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius. And the reason why Marcus Aurelius is relevant to today's conversation is that he was a stoic philosopher, arguably one of the most powerful people of his time. And fortunately for us, he kept a journal about life and leadership, and that has been published through the ages under the title Meditations. So let's get to it. Our conversation on Stoicism, starting out with the difference between Stoic with a lowercase versus capital S. So the stiff upper lip use of the lowercase Stoicism 
is not quite in line with the teaching of the school of philosophy, the uppercase S stoicism. And there's a lot of problems that come with the repression of these things. You're going to get upset. You're going to get angry. You're going to feel these emotions that are within you. And modern psychology tells us that if we repress these things, not only are we not doing something beneficial, we're probably doing something actively harmful. So instead of that, the uppercase S stoicism, the actual school of thought, is more recognizing those emotions not suppressing them, but sort of dealing with them. There's a certainly an Eastern flavor to that that a lot of Buddhists and modern meditators would actually relate to. But you accept that, yeah, that was your initial take on something. Instead of repressing it, let's deal with it. Let's process the fact that, yeah, I'm hungry. And that guy in the fourth room down the hall kind of upset me with what he said while he was drunkenly having his head back repaired. You know, those kind of <laughs> things will happen, and you just got to deal with it and understand what's in your control and what's not in your control. If you could sum up stoicism in a sentence or a paragraph, now it's not easy because there's so many aspects to it. What's the nugget you can hold in your hand? I'm going to steal from a guy much smarter than me named Epictetus, and he summed it up beautifully in one line. Stoicism is to make the best of what is in our power and take the rest as it naturally happens. And maybe more recently, someone that you told me about, Martha Washington, not known as a philosopher, but actually quite the philosopher. She said, I've learned from experience that the greater part of our happiness or misery depends upon our dispositions and not upon our circumstances. That's a, a beautiful Stoic quote by someone not classically associated with the school. Let's get a little bit more into the details of Stoicism with the different precepts or tenets. How does it break down? Well, sure. There's a lot of ways to cut this very delicious cake. <laughs> and uh, one of the, uh, the common ways of doing it is to talk about the three disciplines of Stoicism. So the first is the discipline of desire, which is basically acceptance of our fate. It's basically having a philosophical attitude about things that happen to you. You can still fight to make the world a better place, which is one of the common criticisms of Stoicism, that they just sort of accept whatever happens and don't fight to change. You can still go... And, and try to fight the good fight to make the world a better place. But bad things are going to happen to you. And if you don't accept that those bad things will happen to you, you're going to get nowhere. It really reminds me a lot of the Jocko statement of good when adversity strikes. So if something bad happens, say, good, get up, dust off, reload, recalibrate, reengage. It's also really close to the serenity prayer used in Alcoholic Anonymous. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. There's so much to that with that discipline of desire, all the way to thinking about death. That's just an extension of this acceptance of how things are. Everything that is alive was born and will die. And death isn't this thing to fear, but it's part of this natural course of our cycle of existence. And wishing that things that are rough in this world didn't exist will get you nowhere. We unfortunately live in a world that's got climate change happening and pediatric cancer and a bunch of other stuff that kind of sucks. And if you dwell on kind of crying about it as opposed to productively doing something about it and just acknowledging that, yeah, these rough things will occur, is this something that I can change or is this something that I just need to accept? Yes, this bad thing occurred. There's nothing I can do about it. And it's not that you say, things are just as they are. I'm not going to take care of anything. I'm just going to sit here and let it come. No, you are an active agent in your life. And if there's an option to make things better for you to be healthier or for you to have friends, you know, you go out and you do that. It's right. that there are some things that are invariably going to happen. And you, know, you don't have to scream at the wind because the wind is there. 
but you're also not just passive and letting everything run roughshod all over you. And that actually bridges very nicely into the discipline of action. So what is it that you do once you've accepted fate, that these rough things will happen? And discipline of action is basically a love of mankind. The fundamental tenet of Stoicism is that you should live a life of virtue or excellence. It's the only good thing in life, and it's sufficient for a good life. So what do I mean by this? Virtue is a translation from the Greek word arete, or excellence. I'm not going to pretend to to be able to speak Greek, so I'm just going to call it virtue from here on out. And (laughs) anything that detracts us from virtue is an unhealthy passion, is therefore bad. So anything that would prevent you from doing the right thing to serve your fellow man and to do the right action is something that's negative. So it's not a, a problem, for example, for you to have things like money or health or things like that. But if you're willing to sell your soul in order to get a little bit of extra money, then that money is detracting from your virtue. So it's still natural for people to prefer things. Like I still enjoy nice craft beer and a warm, cozy bed and to hang out with friends that I enjoy the company of. Those are all what we'd call preferred indifference, which are a technical stoic term for basically things that we'd like but aren't absolutely essential. There's nothing more important than virtue. And so anything that you'd put on the balance of scales of, should I do this thing that's not virtuous in order to get something I like, like money or fame or something like that, it's not worth it. So you should always choose virtue. One of the key criticisms that many people have of Stoicism is it looks very introverted because a lot of the writings that are left are talking about, how can I improve myself? And I think that that's a, a key idea is that instead of criticizing someone else for ways that they should improve, I should first look, how can I make myself better? But if you really look at what the Stoic writers actually said, it's about the good of all mankind and not just for yourself. So Stoics have to, to truly love their fellow man. And they were actually one of the first groups of philosophers that could be described cosmopolitan, which means citizen of the world. So I wouldn't think, oh, I'm, I'm Greek or I'm Roman, and that guy over there, he's not. He's German, and therefore he's lesser than me. They actually preached a lot about the idea that, that we are all in this together And I have to serve other people as if they were myself. There's a lot of golden rule baked into this. When you look at the good parts of philosophy or world religions or whatever, many of them have this idea of interconnectedness. We are all matter. We all arise from the same stuff. We're all sort of the same thing, just different manifestations of it. And to your point, a lot of this is selfish not in the bad way, but it is all focused on the self, but to be more engaged in that interconnectedness between everything else. I mean, it sounds kind of woo-woo, but the application of this is a very empathetic approach to everyone else. There's a lot of overlap between what the Stoics said and what a lot of the more Eastern-type ways of thoughts, that we're all in this together. There's a lot less separation of you and me than what I naturally think in my Western-educated brain, that we're, we're all humans and that we all matter equally. So the third and last discipline is the discipline of assent, which is basically mindfulness of our judgment. We basically want to live according to reason and be truthful in thought and speech and remain objective. Sometimes bad things happen to us, and it's our judgments about these things. It kind of goes back to that Martha Washington quote. It's our judgment about what happened. So you catch the flu. Well, most people don't enjoy having the flu, but if you really pull back, it's just a a series of uncomfortable feelings that you have. And wailing and gnashing your teeth about having the flu doesn't 
get you any better. So you sort of accept that, yes, my muscles hurt. I am coughing. I have a fever. That's not fun. <laughs> However, it's really our judgment about these things that disturb us much more than actual, yes, you've got the flu. Deal with it. Someone may insult you, for example. They might, they might say that you're an idiot or something like that. I recently had a patient with dementia that somewhat hilariously was saying, like, you don't know what you're talking about, sir. And he was dead serious. It kind of initially like, whoa, this, this guy's attacking my, my character, saying I don't know what, what's happening. And then when you just pull back, and really the objective thing is, this man with dementia is saying that he doesn't think that I'm a real doctor. It's okay. And then just answer his questions as best you can and acknowledge that I'm not hurt by that unless I allow myself to be hurt by the fact that he's insulting me. And then a closely related aspect of this discipline is the idea of an inner citadel, which is this internal fortress within us that no challenging circumstances can disturb. So even when it hits the fan and things just aren't going well, you're just aware of what's happening internally and nothing can harm you because as long as you continue to act virtuously, you're living a good life, even if things around you are objectively rough. These are all great principles, but this is a philosophy of action, not just thought or pontificating on things. And I think that the only way to you know, truly internalize or make these things you know, habits or part of the way you think, if people are interested in that, is to actually put them into action. So let's use some cases that we might see in the emergency department or the hospital or situations or scenarios or interactions and how we might apply stoic principles, prioritizing action over words. And the first is a scenario that I occasionally interweave into the show because it happens to everyone who works in the department, regardless of your role, especially the clinicians, and that is this. You have a tough shift and it seems like it will never end. The clock is going backwards. There are 40. No, there are 50 people in the waiting room because you just looked up again. You can't get patients upstairs. You are spinning your wheels. You feel stuck. And you feel like you suck. What really breaks my heart is when you look up and you're like, 15 people just signed in the last 10 minutes. That's the one that, that sets me off. And I, I need to be more stoic about it, I suppose. But Marcus Aurelius has this amazing quote about it. Remember, matter how tiny your share of it. Time, how brief and fleeting your allotment of it. Fate, how small a role you play in it. To unpack that a little bit, if you take the view from above, zoom out a little bit. Yes, you are 11 hours into your 12-hour shift of misery where the waiting room is stacking up and you can't move people upstairs. If you zoom out a little bit to, to think of the whole world, and, and you can take this step by step of think of your whole city, your whole state, your whole country, the whole world, the universe, however far you need to zoom out to get that view. Right now, this moment, this tough thing that's happening right around me, it is tough. However, is it really unbearable in the big scheme of things if I zoom out far enough? That reminds me of Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot. We had that in our first newsletter. As you zoom out from Earth and you see this pale blue dot and you think everyone that's ever lived, everyone that's ever been and to our knowledge, everyone that will ever be will exist on this pale blue dot. And people are fighting for corners on this tiny little dot. And think about your place in that. Now, Granny, think like, oh, well, I'm insignificant. It's like, no, you actually are really important. But in the perspective of these things that seem so overwhelming and world-consuming, they're really not. And I love that paradox of when you zoom out, we are so small and so tiny, even though we have these huge egos. But we're also everything in that 
every big change that happens, every war that gets started, every cure that gets discovered also happen because of individual people doing little things together. This also reminds me a lot of Bill Belichick, the uh, Patriots coach. He really emphasizes the idea of doing your job, not someone else's. As an example for a wide receiver, you run your route every time, every play. You do it perfectly, and the ball might not get past you. It might even be a run play where you're blocking, but you do your tiny job. And very often during these tough shifts when there's you know 50 in the waiting room, I get bogged down by the fact that, yes, things aren't going smoothly, but if I just run my route and take care of that next patient in front of me, making sure that they're getting the very best care, time flies by. When I think of, oh, the whole hospital isn't moving smoothly and the hospitalists aren't discharging people as quickly as I'd like or, or whatever is occurring, well, that's not my route. You know, we might have a meeting later about how can we help the hospitalists to smoothly discharge patients or something like that. That would be within my locus of control. But right here tonight at 2 a.m. in the middle of, of this rough shift, I just have to run my route and do my piece as opposed to thinking of how I'm going to fix the entire hospital or the entire U.S. medical system or something like that. So much of this is about controlling your internal dialogue. And you know, especially when you're sitting at your station, you're looking at the tracking board and it fills up. Or, or you know, there's many different permutations of that. But when you consider that in your perspective of where you fit in the universe and running your route, yeah, you are controlling your own actions. But some of the stresses really come from without rather than within, such as the difficult consultant. So I think Marcus Aurelius has another amazing quote. Someone hates me, their problem. Mine, to be patient and cheerful with everyone, including them. And I think we've all been there where it's so hard, someone that just disrespected you or, or answered the phone rudely or, or, or whatever. And even if they're in a bad mood, that doesn't mean that I should mistreat them. I need to be patient and cheerful with everyone, no matter how hard that is. There's a lot of different ways that people around us can be challenging. Consultants might suggest an ill-advised treatment, such as k to try to treat hyperkalemia, even though that's a largely disproven treatment. They might not want to do what you think is right for the patient. So a classic being that you want the cardiologist to activate the cath lab because you're really worried about this chest pain patient in front of you, and they're just hesitant to do it for whatever reason. Or if they insult you by implying that you don't know what you're talking about which I think for a lot of emergency medicine docs, this is a real trigger for us because we train so hard and we know our task of resuscitating so well, but we often get disrespected by other folks that think that we don't know what we're doing. Let me pause you there for a second. I'm curious as to what your responses would be to this. So I'm going to take those three vignettes and I want to see how you're going to apply stoicism to each of them. Oh, okay. The first one, hey, that patient with a K of seven, why don't you give him KX late and send him upstairs? I think here, just to pause it, would be a great example of where you have to be flexible. So if I truly believe that KXLate actively murders people left or right, this would be something where I might put my foot down and say, no, I think this is dangerous and I, and I just won't do it. But I need to be cautious that I'm not letting my ego be the thing speaking there. That instead, this is strictly from an objective. I read the literature and this thing, it, it kind of explodes people's intestines and that seems bad. So I'm not going to do it and not, you know, listen, Jack Wagon, like I know this literature better than you do. And just because someone told you 30 years ago that you give KXLate to hyperkalemia, we're not doing it. That's coming from an ego place as opposed to an objective love for my patient of I want to do what's right for them. And ego is so often the enemy in these situations. Every time I, I sort of zoom back and think of every awful conversation we've had a, a consultant and things just went south, 
It was because on some level, my ego was taking precedence over proper care for my patient. And that can never, ever happen. As you say that, I think about the third scenario you're talking about, the consultant insults you by implying you don't know what you're talking about, which is pretty frequent. The ego response is, up yours, jack wagon, I like to use your word, <laughs> but that is all ego. And just a more passive, it's not hopefully not passively aggressive response is, yeah, maybe you're right. Why don't you teach me about this? Or well, what do you think is the best thing for the patient? Now that kind of turns things around a little bit. What do you think is the best thing for the patient? But instead of saying, I do know, okay, maybe I don't, maybe I do. That's not what we're talking about here. If someone criticizes you, there's one of two options. Either they're incorrect, that they don't know enough about KX late or whatever, and their criticism shouldn't hurt you. I mean, I, I wouldn't be bothered by a first-year medical student that knows nothing about STEMIs coming by and saying something blatantly incorrect about EKG reading. Like, I know more than they do about that, and it, it's not a big deal. I wouldn't have my feelings hurt if an arrogant first-year medical student thought they knew more than me. But the other option, and this is the really dangerous one that you lose out on if your ego takes control, is maybe they know something about KX late that you don't. Maybe there's some aspect of this that they have either personal experience or some literature knowledge on that you could learn from. And if you let your ego get in the way, that completely gets shut down. There's no chance at all that you have an ability to learn from them. That reminds me so much of something Stephen Covey said many years ago, first seek to understand, then be understood. And if you wield your ego like a club, it's almost like we're talking about an astronaut's guide to life on Earth. <laughs> you know, We're probably saying some of the same things we said then because these are just such common principles of virtuous living that if you wield your ego like a club, the conversation's over. If your initial response to criticism or, some, or you disagree with something is being upset, then nothing is going to happen except conflict. But if you first seek to understand, have them explain themselves, you, maybe you will learn something, but that is going to lead to collaboration rather than just a fight. And sort of understanding what their frame is. Where is it that they're coming from? When that cardiologist doesn't want to open up the cath lab at 2 a.m., well, why is that? Is there something that you're missing when they took a look at the EKG that you sent them? Is it something that they, they know that you don't, like the fact that he is incredibly fatigued right now and doesn't feel like it's safe and needs to call in another cardiologist or something? By asking those questions of, of help me understand where you're coming from, you have a dialogue as opposed to what's going to basically devolve into a fist fight of some sort. Now, Dan, I know that you are a wonderful steward of antibiotics, <laughs> but you have been getting a lot of patient complaints because you have not been giving antibiotics to patients with viral syndromes, or you've been getting a lot of quote-unquote gentle reminders in your, <laughs> your email, the reaction to those things, your stomach sinks like, oh. And I think that's okay. I'm not sure how the, how the stoic approach is going to land on this, but I, I would think just acknowledge that that's your feeling of, oh, I feel this, this negative emotion I don't think that you can control that initial, almost animalistic response. You actually nailed right there the difference between the lowercase stoicism and the uppercase stoicism. Oh, man. Yeah, you just hit it. I mean, that's it. That initial impression of your colleague when you're signing out on shift says, hey, you remember that patient in Resus Bay 3? And you're like, oh, no. You just know something not great's going to happen. It's never like, oh, yeah, they got discharged home and everything was fine. You know, it's like, yeah, they coded 20 minutes after you left or, or something that's just going to hit you. And that initial gut punch of, yeah, something rough happened, or, or you got 25 complaints last month and your press scores aren't bad, that initial response 
is perfectly psychologically normal, and it is not unhealthy to feel that. And that lowercase stoicism would just tell you, repress it, just pretend like it didn't happen, just put a pretty smile on your face, and things will be okay. And it's actually the exact opposite that you should do, that you should acknowledge, yeah, it's a bit of a gut check that that person had something bad. And then learn from it. Is there something I could have done differently? Or is this just one of those freak occurrences that's going to happen because it was fated to be? So go on. I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that, that's just a perfectly embodies the, the difference between that uppercase and lowercase stoicism. A lot of these things are from interactions that don't have to be that way, that you didn't always have an active role in deciding how this person is upset or what's happening here. You know, and so those are things that you cannot control, right? They're outside of your sphere of control. You know, someone is kind of antagonistic or passively aggressive, but it's not like you can quit every job because that stuff exists. Marcus Aurelius has an amazing quote about this. When you wake up in the morning, tell yourself, the people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly. They are like this because they can't tell good from evil. But I've seen the beauty of good and the ugliness of evil, and so none of them can hurt me. He had another quote later on in his meditations. When you wake up, ask yourself, does it make any difference to you if other people blame you for doing what's right? It makes no difference. Oh, man. Right there is antibiotic stewardship. It really is. I mean, the easy button is during flu season, be like, okay, I've went to the photocopy machine and I've got a hundred scripts for azithromycin today and I'm going to hand out every one of them. And it would be so easy just to walk through and just be the candy man of antibiotics. As opposed to that tough thing of, you know what, we really need to watch out for this so that my kids don't all die due to multidrug resistant organisms. I think it's kind of amazing that we're so focused on all of these Prescania scores from our patients. And that's not to de-emphasize the fact that patient feedback over the stuff that is in our control is critical. Like when I don't give proper discharge instructions or, or if I was rude or, or seemed rushed, those are all things that I need to grow from and learn in order to be a better clinician. But my personal experience is what I've dubbed the McCollum-Prescani paradox, that there's an inverse relation between the importance of an action and its frequency on patient satisfaction surveys. <laughs> so for an example, the times when you really, really screwed up, you made a huge error, did something that you should not have done, they'll go completely unnoticed. No one will ever notice that huge error in discharging someone that had concerning chest pain. However, you'll get constantly blamed for things that are not in your control at all. And then on the other side, your biggest wins, you know, that time that you sat down for an extra 20 minutes and had a beautiful end-of-life discussion for a palliative care hospice patient, it's going to go completely unnoticed. They hardly ever show up in the Prescani forums. However, you'll be praised for doing the bare minimum of, wow, it's amazing that you diagnosed this forearm fracture, when everybody that would walk through the room would know, yeah, it was a forearm fracture, it really wasn't that hard. They show up all the time in those comment sections of those forums. So is the take home that you should just do the minimum? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got it, Rob. And, and uh, microphone drop. Yeah, we got it. No, it, it's just recognizing what matters. Of I, I'm here to take care of this one person in front of me and doing my very best for them and not being so focused on, you know, what are the lawyers going to say? If you are liked by your patients and you genuinely show that you care about them, very few of these complaints actually stick in a way that, that matters to you. But if you're arrogant and you, if you don't show with every fiber of your being that, yes, I really, really care about you, Mrs. Magruder in room two, then that's when a lot of these bad things start sticking and making your life a lot harder. 
as we come towards a conclusion, someone is listening to this thinking, you know what, these sound like pretty good ideas, but it's a big slice of pie to eat. Well, it's In fact, it's a whole pie. It's a whole school of philosophy. Where could I practically start to begin developing some of these habits and some of these responses to stress? I absolutely love this question. And it's one of those things that separates the Stoics from a lot of the more wankerous philosophical schools that just want to talk all day and write long books. So uh, one of those practical things that they talked about, because this isn't just something that you read and then move on with your day, you have to actually live it to get any benefit from it, is to do something physical that is hard and painful in a safe way. So for example, I've been getting into rock climbing and I'm not great at it, okay? I go to the climbing gym and I am a below average climber, but everything about it hurts a little bit. Like you're hanging by your fingertips, you put your feet into shoes that are intentionally two sizes too small, you're constantly falling, and I actually have a fear of heights, which is actually part of the reason I selected rock climbing as, as an activity for myself. But it kind of hurts all the time that you're doing it. But that's part of the point, that you experience this pain, and it's okay. You didn't die today. How does that circle back into embodying the principles? Life is full of all these things that hurt a little bit. You know, those meals that you miss because of that busy shift or whatever. And if you intentionally accept that some things will hurt and that you're not really harmed by it because you're still living a life of virtue, you grow accustomed to some of the rough things that happen. Your power will go out. You will have shifts that never seem to end. There will be nights when you can't sleep because a family member is sick. And if you sort of build up your resistance to those minor episodes of pain, you'll be all right. So it's not an instruction to go hurt yourself. It's really an instruction to do something that is safe, but hurts a little bit. And then you gradually build up a, a thicker skin. That's a very visceral exercise. I mean, there's definitely a thought process that goes into it. But what about just thinking? This is yet another book that you turned me on to. The five-minute journal, which is this reflective journal that you fill out twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. And it's about being thankful for the good things that you have, as well as reflecting on what it is that you could do to make your day better. And this is manifested in multiple instances where the Stoics would mention the importance of reflecting back on what you had in the day and also acknowledging the things that you should be thankful for, those preferred indifference that we'd really like to keep going. Another thing that I, I kind of got dragged into kicking and screaming was meditation. I've got way too much ADD to easily sit on a cushion and meditate for long periods of time, but that was exactly what I needed to make me more aware of myself, to understand some of those internal dialogues. The harder it is, the more you should be doing it. Yeah, that's the hilarious thing about it is, is the folks that, you know, I've had residents and they, they asked me about it. I'm like, yeah, you should give it a try. I try five or 10 minutes and like, there's no way I could sit for five minutes. I'm like, that means that you need to. <laughs> like that very definition of what's so scary about sitting on a cushion for five minutes. Can you not do that? And if you can't, that means you really need to give it a whirl. You know what? You might want to tell your residents on that. Sitting on a cushion seems very weird to people. Sit on a chair. You have to sit. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. You know, this, all this kind of mysticism around. It's like, that's all nonsense. It's just sit on a chair, sit on a couch, and just sit in your car. Sit where you're comfortable. Yeah, whatever works for you. I mean, I've had people that meditate while laying down, which to me is dangerously close to sleeping. Yeah, it's but, too hard. <laughs> yeah, that, that's his own challenge. But there's all these different ways that you can do it and make it yours. Another thing that I do is I actually have what's called a jar of awesome. I think uh, this was a Tim Ferriss method that, that I borrowed. I basically have a mason jar that I put little slips of paper in of things that I just appreciate. They're not always profound. I mean, it could just be like, I'm really glad that I have a coffee maker. That's kind of awesome. And I just write it down on a, a slip of paper and put it in the jar. 
And then after a month or so, you see like, oh, look, there's 50 slips of paper from, from deep things like I'm really glad that my mother's alive to the somewhat shallow of it's nice to have socks that are warm. The more that you reflect on those things, the more that you appreciate them in case they get taken away from you. The Stoic School is a philosophy of action, and one of the principal actions is being an active player in how you interact with and respond to the world around you. Let's use anger as an example to apply some of the principles we've heard today and kind of tie it all in together, maybe even add some new ideas that we didn't bring up in this conversation. We all feel anger from time to time, some of us with higher or lower thresholds, Many would say that this is our animalistic brain speaking. The anger just comes from deep within. The question is, how do we answer that? In the Stoic system, the things that are worthy of our focus and attention are those things that are within our direct control. And direct control is a very specific idea. To dig in that a little more, let's use a mundane example of going to the store. So I want to go to the store at one o'clock in the afternoon. My intent to do that, that is under my complete direct control. That one is fully on me. But what time I actually leave for the store, well, that's only partially within my control because maybe I go to the car or the bike and I've got a flat tire or I'm about to leave and someone comes by and then we end up talking about something important or I'm waylaid by something else. All of those other things are not fully within my control. And by stoic thinking, if they delay my time in leaving, they're not worthy of one shred of consternation. And what's something else that's not within our direct control? The actions of others, like that driver that cut you off, that doctor who just insulted you. Now, these might be things that you were a player and how they escalated, but getting upset and what's coming at you, is that worth your attention? So considering what's under your direct control being the thing to focus on, that's principle one. But you know what? We're going to feel anger regardless. And when it comes to that inevitable feeling, there's a few steps within stoicism that might help in the response. So one of these is self-monitoring. Dan mentioned meditation or mindfulness practice. That gets you in tune with what's going on with your mind, your emotions or whatever, what you're thinking. Am I beginning to feel angry? What does that feel like? What does that look like? The next step is to distance yourself from the event. It's not what happened that made you angry or that person did. It's your perception. It's your judgment of that event. You might be in some kind of heated pitch contest of the wills with someone and you just can't believe what they're saying, what they're doing. Take a moment to consider their point of view. Almost nobody sees themselves as the villain or the bad guy. And most people think that their actions or beliefs are the correct ones. Just think how they might be looking at you. And when you're able to recognize that there is anger, pause. Pause before acting on it. I mean, this is grandmother wisdom here. Did you know your grandma was a stoic? Wait to act until the intensity of the anger has abated. And use that time, use that pause to think about someone you know or someone you know of who would respond with equanimity and then model your response on what you think they would do. And finally, as you're taking this moment before you respond, maybe you're walking away, maybe you're taking some breaths, maybe you're waiting a day, a two, even a week. Think about what a response in anger would look like versus a virtuous response such as compassion 
or kindness. We all well know that it's really the response and anger to an event that way more often causes the trouble than the event itself. If I could go back in time, the past 20 years, and whisper something in my own ear, it would be that line. It's the response to this anger that's gonna cause the problem. This actual problem is small beans. And that is how a stoic processes anger. Something that is inevitably gonna happen, but what's not inevitable is our response. All right, thank you so much, Dan McCollum, as always, for bringing the A-game. And listeners, if you want to get a hold of us, you want to check out previous episodes, get complete show notes, who knows what else, you can do it at our website, stimuluspodcast.com. If you're new to the show and wondering where you can subscribe, you can do it pretty much anywhere you get any other podcast. And if it happens to be in iTunes, throw us a rating. Keeps the wind in the sails. And usually when I conclude a show, I say something like, be well and keep on rocking. Let me tell you, that holds true. Be well and keep on rocking. Don't stop that. But I want to try something a little different here. See how it feels. Try it on for size. Because I heard it the other day. It just sounded so cool. And I've been trying to apply this little mind shift to both big and small things. And I found it really impactful. And the best part, it's super simple. It comes from the documentary Off the Record, which is about David Foster. He is one of the greatest music producers of all time. And when he was a young producer, he handed an album to Quincy Jones, arguably the greatest music producer of all time. And when Foster handed Quincy Jones the album, he said, have a listen, but don't listen to track five because it's out of tune. And don't listen to track two because the songs are not that good. And track seven, just skip over that. But track four, track four is really good. Quincy Jones said, give me that thing. And he looked down at the album. What's it say right there? What's that say? produced by David Foster. You give me something with your name on it and you make excuses for it. And since then, David Foster said, I try to be great every day. And so here's my ask for you. Pick something each day to be great at. Something small, something big, whatever. You know, start today. Am I doing this good or am I doing this great? You'll find that when you make this small shift in mindset, It turns the mundane or the routine or the habitual into something really joyful. I mean, it just gives new energy to it. And I think it also enhances the experience of whoever's on the other side of it. And there we go, my friends. Stimulus episode 14 is in the books. Until next time, be great every day.